I can still remember coming back from a... It was very heartbreaking. When I came back from a six-week mission for the World Bank where my oldest son then was a year and a half, and he basically wouldn't talk to me for about a week. As far as he was concerned, I was a traitor, and I didn't really like that. And he was right. But as far as he was concerned, six weeks was eternity. I had disappeared. I'm sort of smiling because I'm just... It's, it's hitting all the spots of... My elder daughter decided I'm persuaded to come and work with us, and uh, she sat down. I was a complete animal workaholic during my 40s and 50s. I'm still a workaholic for my age, but she sort of said, said, suddenly said, OK, I'm coming, but I have to tell you, I don't know you, I'm frightened of you, but you've always been there when I've been in trouble. I said, well, about time we got to know each other. <laughs> she said, I would say she was a broad-minded person. But, yeah, very tolerant. What I do is different. One of the important things about my life has been it's mostly intellectual and writing and doing my own thing. I have very consciously, when I was 27 at the World Bank, I decided I didn't want to manage anybody. That was when I was managing some people and I had been promoted quite early. So it was an interesting job and I enjoyed it. And I decided I never want to do that. I don't want to do management. I want to do my own thing. And I want to do it in the closest to freedom that I can get. And uh, what I've done the last 35 years has allowed me to do that. So I don't have to travel if I don't want to. I have no obligations to the bottom line. That's for other people to worry about. I don't have to produce my stuff. So it's wonderfully self-indulgent. Ultimately, I never grew up. Uh, but the, <laughs> So the result is I didn't come home exhausted, but I was busy. But I've always had time for them in the weekend. We had very long holidays, thank heavens. So, yeah, I was very close to my children, as I had been to my father before, and it was important to me. Uh, Dee, how are we looking? Hello, and welcome to Business Without Bullshit. I am Andy Uri, and alongside me is my co-host and father, Richard Uri. How are you doing? I'm okay. Good Fantastic. to see you. Fantastic. And today we are joined by a very special guest whose work we highly admire, Martin Wolf. Chief Economics Commentator at the Financial Times. Welcome to the podcast. Pleased to be with you, at least at the moment. <laughs> yes, <laughs> excellent. Um, so, Martin, we, we always like to ask a, a, just a simple first question. What, what's keeping you up at night at the moment? Well, I think, to be honest, there are so many things. On the, uh, the day-to-day uh, life, what I write about and what's going on in the world are the same things, so they keep me awake for both reasons, professional and personal. We've been through a pandemic. We uh, are in the middle of a very serious war. We have a fantastic turmoil as a result in commodity prices and a major energy crisis and cost of living crisis in Europe, which will, I think, um, affect political stability. And you can see it in some ways, even in this country, with this wave of strikes. I don't know how this will end, which sort of reminds me a bit of the 70s. So from a professional point of view and a personal point of view, you have to ask, how will this end? And I know enough to know that it'll probably end well. Mostly they do, but sometimes they don't. Yeah, there was um, certainly an optimistic tone within that. I mean, my, my dad made me laugh a while ago when we were talking about, you know, for us, it just seems so bad at the moment. And then you kind of did a potted history in your head. And you said, well, hang on, it's always been an absolute nightmare. And you just sort of ran through the last tower of a Well, there's always wars and 1974 and all of that and the chaos that ensued. And it's worked its way through. Yes, I think, first, it's true. Most of the time it works its way through. Second, you might be talking about 
where England or Britain is now, Britain is very favorably positioned to oh, work it? its way through because it's an island. And the yeah. uh, and uh, an island with strong allies, very nice position to be in. But my parents were both refugees. So uh, fortunately, none of this has affected me directly, but I know when things can end up very differently and one cannot take it for granted that they won't. I, the, it's the uh, the splendid isolation point, isn't it? The, the, the UK's fortunate position, there's a sort of time zone one, but as you say, you know, we've got a moat, as, 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 as the there's famous a, phrase It was goes. a wonderful letter, which I remember, I think it was in the Times, because somebody had written an article about the blessings of Britain. This is quite a long time ago, nothing to do with Brexit or any of that. And uh, there was a response to the letter, of quite a short one, from a Polish gentleman who who said... You know, when I think about it, there's only one thing that about Britain we really envy, and that's the English Channel. Yeah, yeah, and and with the uh, we weren't invaded what by Napoleon by you know, and 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 we'd love to put it down to our fabulous military, and we're not bad in a fight, but it's well, I think the the navy was pretty important, and we built it up for very good reasons, and indeed the history of of. Uh, British public finance is really linked to financing the Navy, uh, something that's not widely understood. Um, and they were really good. Uh, but the big thing that the, the, the British could do is they could put all their resources into the Navy. The Army was, by continental standards, for a country of this size, quite trivial. Yeah. And they didn't need it because they first had to get through the Navy, and the Navy could do this because the sea was big enough to d- defend it. Now, in earlier periods... I, 1066, there wasn't a navy, or at least it wasn't consistently successful enough. Alfred the Great actually did build one, but very important. But the point is defending Britain before you get on the land, before anybody gets massacred, all the rest of it, has consistently proved pretty easy because for a very long time, the partial exception of the 17th century with the Dutch, they control the seas. But now, you know, in today's age of sort of everything's digital and everything, is that that moat economically is still fundamental to how we'll, we'll be all right, Jack, kind of uh, thing? Well, I think that it is perfectly arguable that this instinctive belief, this inherited belief of the English particularly, that we are an island and we are secure as an island is no longer as plausible as it used to be. First, there's the air, and now there's space. Uh, That's just a military point of view. Um, Having the English Channel doesn't defend you against an intercontinental ballistic missile very well. And then, of course, our economies deeply integrate into the world's economy. Uh, And I think people don't understand how profound the implications of that are compared with, say, 80 years ago or 70 years ago, when we at least were self-sufficient in manufacturers. We could produce pretty well everything we needed from that point of view. We imported food, which was important, and uh, and later raw materials, oil and so forth. But if you controlled the seas, which they did throughout the, the two wars with American help, crucially, then you were secure. But now, if you go and look at what British people consume, the inputs for our industrial processes we need, a vast proportion of them come from abroad, and we don't know how to make them. No. And I think this affected the Brexit campaign. People didn't understand that these perfectly understandable historical instincts, reflexes, 
of coming from the Napoleonic Wars, you mentioned the First World War, the Second World War, and so forth, don't really work in the same way. It's different now. So we remain, I think, we benefit from the channel in some important ways. It's difficult for a land army to get here, but our vulnerabilities to the world are much deeper than I think many people realise. But out of this, you know, what is fortunate or unfortunate about our position? You're sort of saying we, you're, you're optimistic about how things will pan out in terms of, you know, maybe we're at the bottom of a load of problems, are we? Or Well, if it, we're just talking about the broad historical context. So if I was going to list what we, the assets we have and the problems we have, the asset we have is this is a rich country. Still, which is important to remember this, we have very considerable resources which we can use. We have, by world standards, a pretty sophisticated population, highly educated, with some first-rate educational institutions. We have a fair number of businesses that function well and produce things in very different kinds which the world wants. We have a major position in the world's dominant language, So we have these great assets. The problems we have is we are very substantially de-industrialized, and I don't think that can be reversed. Um, That has left a large part of our country that affected the regions very profoundly and a large part of our population, I think, somewhat economically bereft. It has made our economy quite unbalanced and... There is a real question, I think, about what our new growth drivers are going to be. Mm. What are the sectors? One of the views I have is what you can do really well tomorrow depends on what you can do really well today. You can't just jump into something new. And so one of the things I worry about is that there aren't that many things we do very well today which are going to allow us to do very well tomorrow. There are some Life sciences, obviously, some of the high tech, some of the finance, some of the creative industries. These are really strong media. Unfortunately, these are good things. Unfortunately, if you look at them, they employ highly skilled, highly creative, mostly university educated people. And that's the basis of our comparative advantage. So the question then arises, well, what are these, the growth of these industries going to mean for the population as a whole and for the economy as a whole. I should have added universities and education, science and those things into it. This is a growth opportunity for highly creative individuals, many of whom are highly educated, not all, and highly skilled. And that's very different from what happened within industrialization, which was much more, though very painful, much more inclusive. Yeah, you you hit too on something that bothers me. Someone described it to me years ago, calling about this, talked to me about the social Darwinism of London. And he said, you know, the problem with these cities is you you have to be cleverer, higher educated, to you know, be able to afford to live there. They're moving at this rapid rate. They're open. They're you know they're they're a different society, and it's leaving the rest of the country apart. And this is it. I don't know how we fix it. It just seems to be getting worse. Britain, I, I've written a bit about this. I hadn't realised this before I'd written about it, but ours is um, basically the most regionally unequal economy in Europe. 
And this is the main reason. Well, part of the reason, London is really rich. Yeah. I mean, the average income, the actual income distribution in London is extremely wide. So there are lots of poor people in London. Um, very important to remember. But on average, London is extremely rich because it is a focus of all these things I've talked about. Mm. And if you sort of include London, the southeast, so you throw in Oxford and Cambridge and it's yeah. a nexus of high productivity, highly skilled, often global people, international people, uh, doing highly paid and skilled things. And these are, this is an agglomeration. People come here because there are other people like them and businesses that know how to use them. Um, this gives uh, London a dynamism, which has been pretty consistent even now. And how do you start this Elsewhere, it's very interesting, and again, I hadn't realized that if you look at our other large cities, they don't show any of the economies of scale that big cities show elsewhere. In general, big cities in the modern world are richer than the countryside, the country around them. The average incomes are higher because they generate huge agglomeration economies, as technical term. But this doesn't seem to apply strangely to a Manchester um, or a Birmingham. They've fallen behind as their, as their manufacturing industry did. And so one of the big things that has to be done is to reverse that. I think there are things we can do, but uh, and that was what the levelling up so-called white paper was about. It wasn't a, in any way a, a perfect document. But we have to recognise that's going to be a lengthy and quite costly and difficult process, which involves, in my view, political transformation, investing in infrastructure, investing in heavily in research institutions, universities and things like that, um, creating an environment in which skilled people will want to live, beginning to create these agglomerations, because, again... London has sucked in so many of the skilled people in, in our society. The graduates leave the top universities, then they go to London. And that's really very difficult for everywhere else. So well, it's hard to move gravity, isn't it? I mean, I'm looking at around us in the Thames Valley, a lot of film studios developing, growing, planning permission being granted. Pinewood, yeah. But they all want it. Well, not just Pinewood. I mean, Amazon got a, took over Bray Studios and developed it. There's another one being in, the, in for planning within a mile of that. So there's a sort of growth of these studios because they want to be together because it is the agglomeration of the skilled technicians and the people and trying to say to them, well, you've got to go and move to Newcastle, which is a lovely place to live and, you know, be quite happy to move somewhere like that. But, you know, they're not going to go because the, the labour's there. He throws also a problem in my book because it, if you're an international executive, it's got the most flights, you want to come there and, and then you'll have your business, you know, Amazon or whoever it is, it will be want to be there. So it's hard to move the gravity, isn't it? I think in, to some degree it's going to be impossible, but I think we can make it a little, somewhat less bad or somewhat better with some uh, effort. But the fundamental truth is this is a huge and very wealthy agglomeration by world standards, certainly by European standards. Um, it's a megalopolis and uh, it's include everywhere, about 15 million people, about a quarter of the population, much more of the economy. It's very, very difficult to reverse. And in a way, it would be crazy to try and reverse it if it meant actually destroying yeah, yeah. the one powerful economic engine that the UK has. So British governments have a problem. But at the same time, 
you have to recognize that a large part of the population correspondingly does feel left behind, and that shows up in the politics. And you want a stable society. You want people to feel they all have an opportunity, that their children have an opportunity. Uh, so we have to do both. What's so frustrating, and you 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 allude to it several times. This, this we all aware of this short sightedness. You know, I mean, it just seems mad. You feel like the Germans know. You know, you always talk about how the Germans rebuilt the industry and everything, and it's just like, why can't a politician stand up and say, right, I've got a twenty year plan. We're gonna because we seem to be able to pull money out the air these days when we need it. You know, we can borrow two hundred billion. Why can't we do? You know, we're going to rebuild our infrastructure. It's going to cost. It's going to cost us a trillion pounds, and it will take twenty years. And off we go. You know, there are two different. There are three different <laughs> questions here. First, why are our politics so short-termist? I think this is because politicians are pretty. Politicians respond to incentives, and politicians don't think they will be rewarded for not being short-termist. And that's because that's not the way the electorate thinks. So we're uh, never being given a choice to think otherwise. Though, well, are we? the well, let's get to the second thing. Yeah. Uh, so the first thing is politicians do what they think works. It's slogans and so forth. The second is. To do this properly requires really an enormous amount of far-sighted policy making and thinking, which can't be just done by politicians because there are very few of them and they don't know. So this needs this capacity in the, the bureaucracy and associated research institutions. They have to be integrated. And the the bureaucracy, which I think is actually rather capable, is driven by the politics. So most of the effort, I think almost overwhelmingly, the effort of the British government is managing the short term because that's what the politics says to them they should be doing. So that then drives the sort of, if you ask, take the most important department, the HM Treasury, it's basically concerned about short-term stability because that's what people really respond to. And uh, its long-term planning capacity is very, very, very limited. And that's true of most of the other departments of state. Just asking the questions that the levelling up white paper asked was an extraordinarily rare activity for the British government, its machine, the whole system, because it's not asked those sorts of questions. Universities, by the way, for different reasons, all their research departments are also not very helpful because they're mostly quite theoretical in economics. There's no real reward for, mm. for working on these things. And the final point is I don't think our institutions of government are very ideally suited to it because ultimately everything is centralised in London. So the, and all the power and all the choices. So there isn't a stream of powerful, well-argued cases coming, or there haven't been arguments being made for a different way of looking at this. So we are stuck, I think, in a vicious circle of relatively short-term politics, which drives, which supports the reinforcement of current strengths because today's situation is what everybody focuses on. I would finally just say on your comment, I think there is an interesting question about how best to use our resources. I think we can, we could invest more. Um, and I've been arguing for a long time, we could borrow, have borrowed more, though it's now getting much more difficult to make that argument at the moment. But it's still a matter of choices. Resources aren't infinite. And so you have to decide, well, what do you want to spend money on? Yeah, 
Do you feel that maybe that whole levelling up, you know, maybe Scottish independence would be good? Maybe London and the South East should form their own... I know that's the same sort of, you know, thing, but maybe they need to be separate little countries because little countries can run themselves better. And I think there's lots of evidence that little some of the richest and happiest countries in the world, if you look at the, yeah. the wealth, happiness of the population, are small countries. Finland, yeah. Denmark, all the Scandies. Switzerland, Switzerland. Um, all the Scandies, yes, the Netherlands. These are pretty successful places. So uh, now there are two arguments against this. Uh, one, obviously, is this all works because actually there's somebody big underwriting their security. That's not us, it's the Americans, obviously. But the, the deeper answer is there is no way of getting there from here except in the Scottish case. I think there is a perfectly plausible long-run case for Scottish independence. The intermediate 20 or 30 years will be really hard. You can, I mean, not as hard as they were in Ireland, because that was a different context and a different background, but they were very... It took Ireland basically 60 years, 60 to 70 to years. To stabilise the country. To, to, no, to, well, no, they stabilised it earlier, but to work out a growth model that really, really worked for them. Yeah. And... And in the meantime, they remained, for most of that period, very poor and rather isolated. Um, now, Scotland wouldn't go through that, but the redesign of the Scottish economy, the Scottish economic system, and all that that would be required by independence would be radical. And in the short run, their welfare state would have to be pretty savagely cut back, I think. If, I don't think they could fund it very easily because they are a pretty weak economy. They could argue that that's because they've been part of the union for so long, but that's the situation. Now, breaking up the rest of the country is historically just impossible. This is, you know, England is arguably the strongest and oldest unitary state in Europe. Really, the really? strongest and oldest. Because Germany's quite yeah. new. Oh, the, Germany know. and Italy obviously know we're in it. Fra and even France... France it took France really till the end of the Middle Ages because it's vastly bigger and to actually impose a powerful centralised state. Then they had religious wars. So the really strong centralised state of France is a sort of 17th century creation. But um, you can argue that England was essentially created as a unitary state by Alfred and his successors. So um, in by the 10th century, it already existed. William the Conqueror maybe be reinforced it. But essentially, this is a 1,100-year-old unitary state. All the really strong regional identities, you remember, there was Wessex and Mercia and Northumbria have disappeared. This is a unitary state, and people think of themselves as English. I did once write a column, which I thought was great fun, saying, you know, that London should secede and become a city-state, um, and that it would, of course, be fantastically prosperous, and it would be a totally different place from what it is now. But it's obviously a jeu d'esprit. It's not serious. So we have to do with England what we can. But England, nonetheless, is extraordinarily centralised by the standards of a country of this size. It's a it's a, you know, England is, what, 50 million plus, the exact figures. They're a big country by European standards. There are only a few, France, uh, Italy, just Germany, which are bigger. And um, everything is decided in London. There's yeah. no reason why we shouldn't have created alternative structures. The, the problem is our historical structures, which were counties, 
are not really economically relevant. You need structures which compare in size with the German lender. That is to say that they are viable city regions. And you'd probably, if you were designing it, but this is not the way we work, you'd probably break England up into six biggish regions and give them very substantial powers. And that would generate competition among them. The central government would, of course, redistribute resources, but would not be deciding how they spent money. Some would succeed, some would fail, and they would learn from one another. I think this will be great fun to do, and I think it will be, the results might be very productive, but I just can't see it happening because it would mean that the whole machinery in London would lose power uh, and control, and the public, by the way, would react against this because they, what they would say is, well, as a result of this, these people over in hey, Newcastle are doing much better than we are and wherever we are, and that's not acceptable. I mean, we want, we want, uh, we're, we're all the same. This is called postcode lottery or whatever it might be. Yeah. So creating a different and generally decentralised system of governance will be resisted. It's been resisted by the Conservatives and by Labour. It's like a curse and a, and a, and a blessing, Well, if you're it? talking about the weaknesses of where we are, I think this over-centralisation of British public life and its short-termism in thinking about policy, getting it to think long-term about policy is really striking. I'll give one example which... I engage in, when this trust and Kwasi Kwarteng came in, they said, our aim is growth. And by the way, I think pretty well everybody agrees with that, yeah. right? But then they said, well, what is, what is a growth strategy? Essentially, their view of a growth strategy is cut marginal tax rates, not by very much, by the way, and deregulate in areas which really have nothing to do with growth. The aim and the means that they were putting forward had no relationship with one another. We've done basically as much as we can do with that sort of reform in the Thatcher period. That's the argument I made. We now have to focus on the areas you focus on. What sort of investments do we want to make? What sort of institutions do we need to create? What is the basis of our future comparative advantage? There's a work going on organized by the Resolution Foundation on that, which is very important. How do you build on what we're good at and yet make sure that it does actually affect most of the regions of our country? These are really difficult questions which require organized, institutionalized policy making, and we're really bad at that. Why do you think we're bad at it, though? I mean, well, we're quite open in, you know, we're not bad at politics. Because, but no, we're very bad and good at politics, but our orientation is, well, a man called Duncan Weldon wrote this very good book, I thought, called Muddling Through. And that's what we do. Uh, we don't like this long-term planning idea. And, uh, and our orientations are quite short-term. I think one of the reasons for that is it worked so well for so long. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the simple truth is we muddled through into the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, yeah. We muddled through into creating the biggest empire in world history. Nobody planned it. It just happened as you a result. You know, that's what they say is, is engineers. The, en the British are great engineers, but it's all trial and error. And by the way, trial and error is very important. And muddling through into great success is very important too. I'm not suggesting everything can be planned. Yeah. Uh, not at all. I'm not That's naive. But this process of serendipity, market freedom, entrepreneurialism, adjusting to the moment, and then if that doesn't work, adjusting again, is very much British 
political and economic culture. It has very real strengths. But I think in our current circumstances, it also has weaknesses. It makes it very difficult for us to shift into another path. And so we've been stuck with the things we turned out to be good at. And some of them, as for instance, finance. Finance is very important, but we over-relied on it. And it's not going to do again what it did before 2008. It's just not. And so we should have said, that's not where we're going to go. Let's build on something else. I mean, one of the things that I do respect about Dominic Cummings, um, who was, I think, many ways a slightly strange human being, yeah. is that he said, well, what are, one of the things we are good, we're genuinely scientifically innovative. Yeah. Now let's see if we can create institutions, our DARPA, which will actually generate real economic activity out of that. Well, we can do more than we've done. It's an old problem. I think we can do more than we can. And it's not even planning. You need institutions to do that. You need institutions that link up with the government's around the country, which are interested in it, getting people to talk to one another, that's basically a lot of what how Germany has done things. I don't think muddling through is enough anymore. We are individualists wrapped up within a highly centralized, short-termist political system. That's, I think, basically yeah. what we are. And we are, have been effective muddlers through, and we will continue to be. I'm not, I don't, it will go on and it won't fundamentally change because that's who we are. And it gives us some real strengths and, and it gives us things in our society, which I really enjoy, like the individualism. Yeah, yeah. We don't go completely crazy like the Yanks, but we yeah. don't, on the other hand, create their uh, spectacularly successful, big innovative yeah. companies. We create small innovative companies. And now, a quick word from our sponsor. Ori Clark got its start back in 1935. And while the world has changed a bit, it's more than just survived. From complying with the FCA and all things financy, they can also speak fluently in the language of legalese. Ori Clark was born and raised right here in the UK And now for 20 years they've been helping others get set up and on their way Ori Clark's doors always open and happy to provide Straight talking financial and legal advice since 1935 Big shout out to Sean Veer Singh for a stellar jingle You can find him at Sean Veer Singh Music on Instagram and at this point, let me quickly remind you to give us a nice review, please, on Apple Podcast or follow us on Spotify so you'll never miss an episode. Now back to the chat. Some of the issues, are, I sort of don't know what your view would be, but I, the abolition basically of technical colleges seems to be a bit of a disaster because I've got clients who are manufacturing, but they can't get any skilled labour. They invest heavily in automation, but they still need people who can build quality products. And uh, there just doesn't seem to be any labour out there. And there's, so how you develop those businesses when they've got world-beating products and can't get any labour that's, you know, very little labour, is a really tricky issue. Well, my wife is the expert on skills and she's been trying to persuade the British government to spend much more on this and to create with, with industry apprenticeships and so forth, which would really work. I mean, as she says, uh, the biggest problem is that um, if there's a shortage of money, 
in the government, which they're always for education. Schools get it first and universities get it second. And that leaves anything else, further education, technical education and so forth, out in the wilderness. So she has proposed some very interesting reforms, which might make a big difference over time, a lifetime learning allowance and so forth. Um, but the but the this is this has become the sort of stepchild of our of our expenditure. And uh, as the budgets get tighter and tighter, it becomes increasingly difficult for governments to invest in things like that. The, until we left the EU, the solution for many companies was to bring in skilled people from Europe, now more globally. But it's, I think, always difficult to get exactly what you need if you're looking in a labor market thousands and thousands of miles away. So I agree with you. We've obviously done a poor job. It's a long-standing complaint. It goes back to the 19th century, actually, in creating the skilled people we need. It's a, it's a vicious circle, though. It's exactly what we're talking about. It's the critical mass problem. The industry disappears. How do you train them? And then people aren't used to those sorts of jobs. And then the university that. colleges are offering criminology and media yeah. studies, some of which is fine, but leaving a huge gap for the skilled machinists or whatever that's needed. Well, when we brought in the Japanese companies, Nissan and Toyota and Honda and people like that in the 1980s, one of the the reasons for doing this was to uh, to get them to train people, and they did. I mean, it was a small thing, but it was a significant thing. And it was one of the... Reverse of history there, you know, yeah, 100 yeah, years yeah, earlier, yeah, we yeah, were out there. Absolutely, but realistic, and they did. But first, of course, I don't think that sort of thing is going to work so well now that we're not in the EU. Some of them will stay, but they're not going to invest as they would have otherwise, I believe. I can't prove that yet. But the the bigger problem, then I agree with you completely, who are the people who would hire these, who are the companies? Of course, Rolls-Royce has a superb uh, apprenticeship program. I've seen it. BAE must do so too, though I haven't. But there aren't many of these employers, and if they disappear, then the demand for the labour they would have had disappears, and therefore they won't be um, motivating people to acquire these skills. It's a vicious circle. Losing as much of our industrial base over such a long period, and by the way, it goes back a very long time. The the, the firms that died in the 80s were often way outmoded yeah. already. Well, you explained that when the Commonwealth sort of fell apart, yeah, we used to sell them. Yeah, we used to sell to the... That was a mistake because it was bound, the imperial preference was bound to end. But my former editor, Jeff Owen, wrote a wonderful book and his basic argument was that after the war was the time to... The, the, the time when you had to go open... It was a great tragedy. We didn't join the common market at the beginning, in which case we wouldn't have had this additional 20 years of protected Commonwealth-based export uh, orientation and protected markets essentially within the imperial system. That disappeared. Then when we joined the EU, uh, or the EC as it then was, German industry, which had become above all, but also some others, so globally competitive because it had to after the war and had been cheap and it built up these huge globally oriented companies, VW and so forth. They were just so far in advance of our manufacturing companies and then the Japanese came along that it was no longer possible for them to survive. And then in machine, machine tools was even worse. It was really collapsed almost completely and all the engineering industries associated with it. And the 
the argument was that the the walled garden of the Commonwealth preference system basically was a trap for British industry. And uh, I think if you read his book on this, uh, it's pretty persuasive. Anyway, this is ancient history. I mean, we can't redo 70 years ago, but where we are now is um, that that's not our strength. There are a few firms that are very, very strong, and we hope they will continue to be successful, but um, we're not going to replicate that. So we have to go somewhere else. And as I suggested, we've got lots of areas where we can go. And uh, uh, I mean, that where we should in principle be able to succeed, we can create lots of new companies, I think, in tech. We're quite successful in that. Then what we've got to do, and this is not my area of expertise, is find ways of nurturing them to real scale. And the question is, what market do they serve and how do they operate? They don't have the American market. They don't have the European market. They're going to have to go for the global. The the Americans can always bring more money. The company that wins is often the best funding. That is, they have, and because they have a really fantastically developed venture capital system. So if you're talking about restructuring our financial industry, I mean, there's a well-known complaint about British banking and British finance and the British stock market that it is doing a very, very bad job of developing and supporting new firms in new industries. There's a complaint that goes back um, to the 20s. You know, the British government currently is very, very interested in what can we do with finance. Well, I have other views on this. I mean, we've created, we've reorganized our pension funds. Well, we've killed them, but we've reorganized them essentially in such a way that nearly all their investments are in British government bonds. I mean, that's crazy. Why would you want long-term funds? They're no longer long-term, effectively, they're mostly closing. But you don't want long-term funds to focus on existing firms, and you certainly don't want them to buy government bonds. You want part of what they do to, because it would be good for them and the country, to invest in the new things. And our financial industry really makes I mean, it very difficult. you know, w- within all of this, so, the you know, yes, we need to focus on the things we're strong at, I guess. I guess there's a sort of a romance to let's be British industry again. Maybe that passed. Maybe now, if you look at what we're really good at, like you mentioned it, music, we're absolutely killer at music or media. You know, we, but we you know, when it comes to creative pursuits, we're like, we're so much better than the competition. You know, it's New York, really, you know, or, you know, other places that compete. So maybe be less romantic and move forward and be who we are, you know. Does it matter if we just produce creative stuff? Well, I think at the very least, we should take the greatest possible advantage we can of what we are good at. And creative industry is certainly one of them. Mm -hmm. As I said, scientific research, we remain remarkably leading. We have some of the best universities in the world. We have the language. We do have finance. And uh, there are activities there which are built on things we're really good at, the legal system and so forth. But I don't think it's going to be enough. So I think the... I do think life science, bio, uh, biotechnology is going to be a huge growth sector. We have some real strength there, historically created. And um, there may well be things spun out of university research which will turn to be very significant. But I agree with you completely that resurrecting the industry we've lost is very implausible. And in any case... Um, the, the deindustrialization process has meant that everywhere, even though industry 
just generates a lot of income, it's, it employs a declining proportion of the labor force, absolutely everywhere. So if we want to create attractive employment opportunities for people in this country, in industry is now 10% of the labor force. It's not going to rise. It is important, but it's not the future. I mean, if I may end on on this, talking about the UK, we must end on weather. I mean, the weird thing is, is the weather's weather. We, we're so fortunate in our weather. You know, I, I think we're great inventors and things like this, just because there's no hurricanes, there's no this, there's no that. You know, we end up in the shed just you know, fixing stuff or, you know, getting things um, organised, as it were. It's a livable climate, without yeah. a doubt. I mean, there are a few other advantages. We don't have earthquakes. Yeah, no which earthquakes. Is, uh, which is, to compare us with Japan in that regard, for Middle example, water. we are not likely to run out of water as long as the Gulf Stream continues to operate. Our weather is remarkably benign, yes. uh, though it feels, doesn't feel so benign today, yes. rather too right. cold. Uh, the... Uh, so it's a very habitable place, though not if you want a sunny holiday. No. Uh, the that's not the problem, and it's a stable. Coming back to where we started, it's a stable society. The political system basically works. We don't have the violence or the extremism you can see in some important countries. Um, all this is pretty good. Um, I think people are beginning to realise that the sort of spasm of Brexit doesn't solve many problems. But I think the problem, the worry I have is we're becoming economically stagnant. Our living standards are not rising. A lot of our politics are distributional struggles as a result. They make it increasingly difficult to do anything. And politics becomes increasingly defensive and conservative. So if you look at the... What are the plans, the programs of our political parties for a better future? They're remarkably similar. And what they're basically saying, when you really look at it, we can't do anything. Yeah, it's true. I mean, just look at the budgets. Look at what they're spending on. Look at what they're, what they're saying is, we can't do anything. That sort of defeatism is ultimately self-defeating. How reliable do you think the statistics that we're getting on? I know statistics and damn statistics, but the rate of speed of change, I think the last time the government looked at it was about seven years ago, of, you know, what they should do. But the rate of change in the seven years, to write a report now, probably in two years' time, would be completely out of date. So how do you get reliable information as an economist where they're leaving chunks out of the numbers, as far as I understand it, the way we've changed to delivery and all the rest of it is not properly in the numbers? So there, there are so many different questions wrapped up in that. Uh, the um, First, of course, getting reliable numbers, aggregate numbers for an economy is very, very difficult. In some ways it's got easier because everything's all transactions are digital, so you can record more things, and there are more means. I mean, the um, Googles and so forth actually give you a lot of data, and you can get data out of them. We know things, for example, during the, just to give you an example, during the COVID pandemic, we knew about the footfalls of people, where they were going uh, in sort of real time, in a way we could never have known before. So there are areas in which... Uh, our data have clearly massively improved and can improve much further if we use these technologies. And I've, I've been talking to people in the past 
in the major companies in in America about this potential for improved data. That's the first point. So I wouldn't despair using that. Second, of course, because things change radically, getting index numbers over time to compare well is very, very hard because the baskets of goods in them change so radically. And the, that's a big conceptual and practical issue, and there are no perfect numbers. The third point I would make is there is a tendency, and this is counterintuitive, so you might well push against this, there is a tendency to believe that ours is the period of fastest change in history, but I think this is quite wrong. Uh, in some ways, and this would involve a long argument, I think the economic change in our time is slower than it has been in, in the past, particularly in the late 19th and, first, and 20th centuries. There have always been completely new products which change everything. Just think what electricity did. And just, just unimaginable Trains. how much it changed. Trains before that. So... This this problem of having unrecorded value, which is real, uh, not measuring change accurately in, and therefore not having a real sense of what's going on, is uh, not a new one. And we, and in many ways, the numbers we do now are much better. What I do think is problematic is that in our case. Now, most of the technological change is linked with information and communication technology. And a lot of the value that they generate is not accounted for. So Google in the national accounts is an advertising company. That's what they get their revenue from. And we can record it as an, as an advertising company. In terms of, the, it provides a very large amount of free services in return for the income it gets from advertising, but they're genuinely free, like GPS um, maps and all the rest of it. And putting the, those zero price services into a national income so is really, really hard. Does any of that affect the measures we have for productivity in our economy? I think, and people have looked at this very carefully, the answer is probably not much. But there are always questions about how well we can actually evaluate what's going on. But I would stress there are some areas where we know much more and other areas where the difficulties are familiar. They're, they're old, deep problems. But there are some areas where, where we're getting now this wave of basically cheap services or zero-cost services. That's quite difficult. I always feel sorry for the FT graph, whoever has to do the graph, the, the three-dimensional representations, because there's always, there's not just one thing of data, there's always three. I mean, particularly your articles will have, uh, you know, those representations. So there's, there's, it's like, how do you get across this, like, super complicated layer? Well, we, I mean, I'm much worse at it than my colleagues, but I think we have re really great experts at presentation of data. All presentations of data are difficult, but you need to know quite a lot about them. I, you know, when I was at Oxford, I spent time, quite a lot of time on statistics. So yeah. the uh, the presentation of data is something people have thought about for going back to the 19th century, mostly here in this country, actually. Obviously, a graph can lie. You have to be reasonably honest, uh, and there are problems with them. But I, I, I insist that some data are better than none. 
I'm an old-fashioned Enlightenment-type person, and facts are facts. They can be debated. How factual they are uh, to be discussed, of course. But more data is better than less data. And if you've got an argument about data, let's get better data. But uh, you can't just make things up. I really feel passionately that in a civilized democratic society, we can disagree about values, we can disagree about interpretation of data, of course. We can ask for more data, but we can't have arguments in which data don't exist. Yeah. And you you indicated there for you it's sort of a, a couple of years ahead, but maybe this fits with the muddling through. Maybe muddling through isn't a bad thing because you have imperfect data. Oh, yeah. You just sort of, it's a, you know, it's like you say, as a whole, we kind of get a sense of it. So, you know, we can kind of feel what we're doing. But, you know, if you focus in too much. My response to this is you need both. You make a plan. You sort of work out where you want to go. And then things turn out to change from what you expected and you change the plan. What's yeah. the problem with that? That's yeah. what any sensible business would do. You know, businesses, well-worked out business, have intentions of where they want to go. They they or they don't just decide on... To, well, they do tomorrow. They decide on several years. And then if it turns out that what they thought was going to work is a complete disaster, then at some point they cut their losses and would do something else. So this is, in a world of uncertainty... You can never have a plan you stick to. That's nuts. It's almost inconceivable that will work. On the other hand, having no plan at all, plan beats no plan. Yeah. Uh, But (laughs) sticking absolutely rigorously and rigidly to a plan which doesn't work anymore is almost equally nuts. Uh, If it doesn't work, you change it. So that was part one of our very special chat with Martin Wolf, Chief Economics Commentator of the Financial Times. If you like what you heard, then be sure to tune in on Thursday for BWB Extra, where we discuss Martin's views on modern monetary theory, the effects of the energy crisis, and what SMEs should be doing to prepare, and ask, what are UK's alternatives to the EU? Can Britain become a global superpower again? And what does the future of UK politics look like? Tune in on Thursday. Till then, it's ciao.